My name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel, and um, I'll add my welcome to Todd's. I'm glad you're here. Sorry, if you're in this uh, hour, you, you missed the baby dedication, uh, the hour, the previous hour, and it was hilarious, and so I'm sorry that you missed that. And uh, 10 babies, uh, 10 families, we should pray for these families, all right? They, they got uh, their hands full, and it's um, pretty exciting. Uh, I don't know where, will we put those pictures out somewhere? There's a picture of one of those babies that's so mad at a watermelon um, in the picture. It's, <laughs> it is funny. It's worth seeing. We should put that out there, Todd, somewhere um, on the internet, however you do that. All right, here's what I want you to do. So go to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 through 11. That's where we're going to be. It is um, in no way related to baby dedication. It's probably like an anti-baby dedication passage, all right? But the way we do things around here, one of our commitments, is we are teaching through books of the Bible. We started a series in the, this Paul's letter, first letter to the Corinthians, several weeks ago, and we are in chapter 6 this morning. This is not a passage that you would typically uh, choose to preach for no reason on a Sunday morning. It, it, this is why going through books of the Bible um, is good for us as a church. We, we come into passages that are um, difficult or um, say things that are hard, and so it's good for us. It, it's this discipline of we want to hear all that God's Word has to say and how it applies. And so to remind you kind of where we are, um, Paul's writing because he, he's heard some reports about this church. There have been some people that have come to Paul and said, hey, this, this stuff's going on in the Corinthian church and we think you ought to know about it. And it was some, it's some nonsense uh, that's been going on. Like, this church is just, you know, one story away from a Jerry Springer episode, honestly. And so he's addressing the things that he has heard. When you get to chapter 7, he is going to be writing and addressing things that they had written to him about. They had some questions about the church. And so Paul's going to write back. He's writing back and is going to address that. But we're here at the end, and Paul is addressing um, these civil suits. Uh, one believer taking another believer to court because um, over an offense or over a loss or something like that. And Paul's going to address this in the, in the church and say, what in the world are you doing? B believers don't do that to, to each other. There's a better way, a different way. And so that's what he is writing about this morning. And so I, what I'm going to do, I'm going to read chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, and then I'm going to come back and we're going to talk about it and um, see what it is that he has to say. Because Paul actually has something to say that is so theologically significant for us this morning. It actually will blow our minds, blows my mind every time I think about it. So listen to what he says. Chapter 6, verse 1, 1 Corinthians. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. 
Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, I pray you'd help us this morning to hear your words, so so to do that, would you open our minds and our hearts and our ears and our lives as your Spirit takes your Word and works into the depths of who we are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so it's an indictment, right? Did you hear that? Well, what in the world are you doing, Paul says? And the issue here, just so we're clear, it's not that the, you know, the believers had disagreements. or the, the, the issue is that they were running to the courts. And so doing so meant they were no different than the Corinthian culture around them. He says, when one of you here in verse 1 has a grievance against another, the rebuke is not against having grievances. As long as we're on this side of heaven... Believers are going to have times where there are grievances. You, you live long enough and stuff needs to be settled. You know, we do business with each other. We buy each other's homes. We, you know, doctors and patients. We're, we're lawyers and clients. And we have accountants and realtors and landscapers and builders and uh, plumbers. And, and the grievances happen. Legitimate disputes. When, when expectations are, aren't met. And, and you know, what... what was agreed upon isn't completed or it's you know it's not satisfied and it's serious enough that two parties are at an impasse so whether it's money or property or reputation you know one of those things is usually at the heart of it and one Christian feels wronged by another maybe rightly so but here what was happening is immediately they were beginning the process of taking this before the local court and the way that Paul describes this in the passage. He uses these generic terms. Grievance in verse 1 or trivial cases in verse 2, verse 4. Uh, matters pertaining to this life, a dispute. Civil grievances. Uh, most commentators think this is probably an issue related to land rights or, or property or, or something like that. And here's what he says, how, how dare you? This is the, the, the indictment. How dare you take that to the courts? How dare you go to law? He's mad about it. And he's mad about it for the sake of the glory of God, for the name of Christ. And, and to give you a little context, here's what was going on. So in the first century, this is the client, the, the, the climate. Local judges 
sat in what was called the Bema seat in the middle of the marketplace. And that is where the civil courts were held. In fact, you can go to Corinth today and you can see in the middle of what would have been the marketplace, the Bema seat is still there. It's, it's still right there. In fact, I, I preached a little thing from that Bema seat. It was pretty awesome. It's like a highlight of my life, you know, setting judgment over everybody who was there. Um, but, but, it's there. but here's the deal. Back then, the, the legal uh, uh, battles, um, you could say it this way, they were entertaining. They, they were a form of entertainment. And so you'd be walking through Corinth and say, well, what are we going to do today? And you say, what? We don't have anything to do today. And so you say, oh, well, let's get an espresso and let's go watch the court. You know, and the guy said, well, I'd rather have a Coke. So, well, okay, get a Coke, then, then we'll go. And, and so they go, and they would sit, and you could sit all day long. And you could watch people there in the marketplace before the Bama seat shame each other. This is what they were there for. I mean, in the ancient world, honor and shame. This is the reason you would take someone to court. It was the economy, if you will. Because their shame meant your honor. And you could climb the social ladder. You could improve your social station in the courts. In the courts, they weren't evenly weighed. They weren't impartial. The wealthy were able to take unfair advantage more than often of the judicial system by exercising their their prestige or their influence or their family name or their social status or uh, their, their reputation, the, the, the eliteness, you know, of who they are. And it was unbalanced. And the poor people or the, the nobodies or the, the, just the boring people. So, you know, you, you're boring. You, you get up, you eat breakfast, you go to your job, you earn a day's wage, you, you come home, you have dinner with your family, you read to your kids, you put them to bed. You know, you're boring. Wasn't wasn't fair. It would would have been imbalanced against you. In fact, one one David Garland, who's one of the commentators on 1 Corinthians, is a great commentary. says, people in the ancient world contended for honor in the law courts. One gained honor by beating rifle down. The pursuit of litigation often had little to do with the pursuit of justice. Lawsuits were typically initiated not merely to resolve legitimate social grievances, but also to further the social status of the litigants. And this process was made only at the expense of one's opponent. This is why they went. Paul's saying, what in the world are you doing? Why Why are you taking... The matters at hand in, in the business, of the, in, in the situation of the church between believers, why are you taking it out there for the public entertainment? Well, why, he says, before the unrighteous instead of the saints. Now, the, the conflict, he means taking conflict into the world's arena. When you take it there to be settled, you are taking a step backwards. And notice that he, he calls them saints. 
anyone in the church is fully qualified. Anyone that's a believer. Fully qualified, he says, to judge the, the disputes that arise in the church. So, so who are the saints there in, in uh, 1 and, and 2 and in, in, in verse 3? Well, all believers. I mean, if you grew up in the Catholic church, you grew up in, you know, high, saints were people, uh, um, you had to be dead to be a saint. And you had to prove that um, you did a miracle. And I mean, very few people achieve sainthood according to, you know, the Catholic church. Paul, though, however, the biblical understanding of sainthood is that if you are a believer, you are a saint, which this is pretty significant because Corinth is a church that's not very healthy, right? Corinth is a church that the things that are going on in this church are an absolute embarrassment. This is not people who are spiritually growing. This is not people who are spiritually mature. These are people who look a lot like the world around them. And, and Paul said last week, look, in, in 1 Corinthians 5, well, the church, I mean, we're supposed to be a boat that floats in the water, the, the world. You know, I mean, we're not trying to get out of the world. We're not trying to boss the world around. We're, we're boats that are in the water. The problem is when the water starts getting into the boat. And the and the boat, the church in Corinth, was taking on water, wasn't it? And yet Paul says here that they're saints. Even as imperfect as they are, as unhealthy as they are, as immature as they are, they're saints. Saints not a special class of Christian. It's those who belong to Christ. Now notice he's going to say two things that are just absolutely amazing. Um, in verse 2, he says that the saints will judge the world. And then in verse 3, do you not know that we're going to judge angels? Now, I want to show you what Paul's doing. He is talking about that there are things that take place in the church between believers that don't need to go to the courts, that needs to be solved in the church. And so what he's going to appeal to is he's appealing to a future reality. The future defines, in this case, who we are, and that should determine what it is that we do in the present. You have a future, he says, if you are a believer... You have a future, an eternal future. That includes you judging the world and judging angels. Now, here's what Paul doesn't do. His point is not to teach us eschatology here. His point is to say, you need to be acting and behaving and living in a manner that is in accord with who you are in Christ. And to do that, he's making an appeal to, don't you know that the future comes? When the future comes, you're going to judge the world. You're going to judge angels. Now, he doesn't tell us exactly what that means. Some people are like, well, it's only judge the bad angels. And, and some people are like, no, 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 he means all the angels. And um, and so, good people, you know, they wrestle about that, and because um, that, that's what we do in theology, is we um, wrestle about points that aren't the point. Um, 
a lot of times. The point is, this is who you are. Paul knew more about what this meant than he tells us. You know, Daniel chapter 7 is probably what he's looking at. And it, but don't you know who you are? He's highlighting what is to come for them in the future to show them how foolish it was for them to be playing the social and political games that they are playing with each other. Listen, that applies all up and down our Christian life, doesn't it? I need to put a parenthesis here, and I need to make a parenthetical statement um, for about two minutes so that we understand the scope and the limitations of what Paul's talking about here. What Paul's discussing here are civil suits. He's discussing, he calls them trivial cases or cases or matters pertaining to this life. Paul is not speaking about criminal activity. All right, so you need to balance 1 Corinthians chapter 6 with Romans chapter 13. I don't have time to turn over there, um, but I want to talk through this for just one minute. The qualifier is, listen, these are things that happen amongst us They are usually things that are driven by pride or money or what we would call principle. If we find ourselves saying, well, it's for the principle of the thing, that's usually something we need to bring to the church, to to an elder or to somebody in the church that's wise and can provide some mediation or or some counsel for us. You know, things, the the principle, I would translate that as my rights. Okay, And as Americans, we all have a Ph.D. in our rights, don't we? And Paul's going to deal with that in the next couple of verses. When we sin against each other, and it results in loss. So here's just a couple of examples. You need some work done. So you go to an accountant or a plumber, some remodeling, and they do a bad job. They're brother in Christ or sister in Christ, maybe in this church. And so they've sinned against you, and by taking your money or refusing to make it right, and now you're out the money and the job still needs to be done. Or maybe it was a matter of an employee, a lazy employee, or a no-show employee, and the boss fires you. And, and, you know, world says, well, that's not right. And, you know, you threaten for wrongful termination even though you're a lazy employee. Or... And here's my favorite, and I'm sure I'm going to offend somebody here, uh, and I don't mean to, unless you need to be, all right? But you have a fish on your business card, and yet how you do business is not above reproach. You're littering the reputation of Christ in the church. You take money, you do sloppy work, you don't pay your bills, you claim Christianity, but you make a mockery of it. I could go on and on. But, but these are kinds of things that happen, and they happen inside the church. And they result in a loss or a, a damage. Now, Paul's not saying it's never right to seek justice before a court of law. In fact, Paul himself uh, appealed to the Roman courts in Acts for 
his, his right as a Roman citizen. But, but this was before those who were looking to persecute him. It wasn't other Christians. And uh, Paul's saying, look, brother shouldn't go to law against another brother. Now, this is categorically different than what Romans chapter 13 helps us understand. And that is what we would call crimes. So, so let's be clear about this. Romans 13, the government is not bad, all right? It's, it's neutral. The courts are not bad. They serve the society as a restraint upon society. They punish crime. They maintain societal justice. It's not perfect, but it is instituted by God, and, it, and that's how God works. He works through the government. He works through the courts. And so somebody... Uh, uh, breaks into your house and steals your stuff, even if they're in this congregation, here's what you do. Call the police. All right? Somebody breaks into your house and steals your stuff. Don't call me. <laughs> call the police. You know, or if a child is threatened or harmed, call the police. Murder, rape, violence. Call the police. Sometimes you've seen churches. You've seen this in the news. They're aware of a sexual abuse against a child. And then they claim 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And they're going to deal with that in-house. But I would say that is an absolute abuse of this text. You call the police. All right. Back to 1 Corinthians 6. This is what Paul's going to say. Here are two alternatives to the court he's going to give us real quick. In 5 through 8, he's going to give us two alternatives. The first alternative is verses 5 and 6. I would call this arbitration or, or um, mediation, all right? So, so the call, let's be clear, the call is not to conflict avoidance or to unresolved issues in the church. Not, not at all. It's a call to gospel-centered resolution through one of these two avenues. Mediation. Verses 5 and 6. I, I say this to your shame. You know, earlier Paul had said in the letter, I'm not trying to shame you. Here he's saying, I am trying to shame you. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's not one among you that's wise enough to settle disputes against the brothers? And, and, he's, and he's poking at them. He's, it's satirical. You know, they, they've prided themselves on being so wise. He says, you don't seem very wise to me. Is there not? I mean, brothers and sisters in, in Christ, that, that should be the first recourse. Well, you know, we shouldn't sue each other in court. In fact, there are some that believe Paul would apply this and say we shouldn't sue anybody in court. Not, you know, even non-believers. But they're good men and women, godly men and women on both sides of that issue. At the very least, here's the thing. Believers should weigh carefully. Is there any other way to get a solution? And if there is, seek that. I said this in the first hour, and I'll say it again here because nobody came up and told me that they disagreed with me, but, which is not a great litmus test, by the way. But I would say this, and we have lots of attorneys in our church that work at all different kinds of law. But I would say you 
could speak to any of them and say, here's what Ross said. Ross said, if there's any other way than to go to court, if there's any other way than to you know, open a case and make this situation a legal battle that we fight in the courts, if there's any other way, I should pursue that. And to a lawyer, I would tell you, they would say, absolutely do that. Absolutely. If there is any other way for this to be resolved, do that. Because it's a mess. It's a mess nobody wins, ultimately. At the same time, if somebody sues you and you have to go to court, then get a great lawyer. I mean it. Get a great lawyer. Somebody who loves God, somebody that's going to seek his glory, and somebody that will defend your cause. Absolutely. Because listen, God wants disputes resolved. He wants them resolved justly and fairly. He is just. And he's built that into us by virtue of being created in his image. But notice, here's the deal. His reputation is more important than our rights. That is an important biblical principle that applies to so many things. If, if we would step back, I mean, right, here's the thing about the church. The church is, and we say, it should be counter what the culture is. We should stand out. We should be different than the world around us. I would suggest to you that if we just started there, if we started with the simple statement that said, you know what, my rights are not my highest priority. My rights are not the most important thing to me in this world. If we just started there and believed that and then lived with each other that way, we would be so radically different from the world around us just doing that. Well, arbitration in verses 5 and 6. Look at verses 7 and 8. This is, look at 7. He, he says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Have your rights become so sovereign in your life? He says, look, you've already been defeated. Even if you win. What'd you win? A little money back in your bank? I mean, he'd say, is it enough money to buy back your honor? Sometimes we have to ask ourselves, remind ourselves. We have to say, okay, God is just, and he sees, and vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And his alone, by the way. And so do I trust God with my rights. Do I trust him as my defender? Am I willing to suffer loss in the short term so that he looks glorious in my life in the long run? And, and so this passage, it presents this principle for us that we can, we can apply across the board in our life. I'd say this, a, a church that is characterized by the gospel the truth that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, stepped out of eternity 
and stepped into history and took on humanity and became our sin and died on our cross and was buried in our grave and was raised three days later, conquering death, raised to new life. If we're counting on that as our hope for salvation, then the church, the church of people who are counting on that for salvation, we should be characterized by that gospel more than our individual rights is the only way for a church to be healthy. Well, so he's, he, he looks like he's about to take a sharp right-hand turn and, and change the subject. And typically how 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is preached is it's somebody picks it up and they start in verse 9 and they go through 11, all right? Or sometimes they stop at verse 10. And so let me just show you, though, what's going on. Paul's not changing the subject here. He, he says here again, do you not know? Now, this is the third time he's asked this question. Six total times he's going to ask this question in chapter 6. Don't you know? And it, the answer assumed is, yes, you do know. All right? Don't you know, he says in verse 9, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So don't be deceived. Okay. Here's what he's doing. Here in the beginning of chapter 6, what Paul has done is he has pointed to our future hope, to our future reality, and said because of that future reality, you're going to judge the world, you're going to judge angels. That should have a, a controlling effect on how you live your life right now because that's who you are now what he's going to do is he's going to bring back this life-changing transformer he's going to look to tomorrow's hope he's going to look back at yesterday's transformation and both of those who we were and who we will be should have an effect on how we live today. Don't, don't you know, he says, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. And then he says this, neither sexual immorality, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Let me break this down for you. There are 10 of these um, vices, we would call them vice lists, or Santa would call them the naughty list, right? There are 10 of them. Six of those he has already named in chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. There are four that he adds in this list. Now, just to remind you, in chapter 5, he's drawing that list from Deuteronomy 22, Leviticus chapter 22. Two of the four new ones find their cross-reference in Deuteronomy chapter 22. 
adulterers and thieves. So we're not surprised to find that those are on the list this go-round. And then what he does is he adds two others. So you got ten. Six have already been named in chapter 5. Adds two, adultery and thieves. And then there are two others that he adds. <clears throat> in our ESV, all right, or my ESV, and then I impose my will upon you by putting it up on the screen. The ESV translates those two words into one word, men who practice homosexuality. But there are actually two words there. The New American Standard has effeminate and homosexuals. New Living Translation has male prostitutes and those who practice homosexuality. Now, let me just say this uh, about this, these two terms. Let me tell you what they mean. The first one is malakoi. It literally means soft ones. What it's referring to is male prostitutes or to the passive partner in a homosexuality, homosexual relationship. What's interesting to note is at the time that Paul is writing this, Nero, who is the emperor of Rome, is getting ready to marry a man named Sporos who had been castrated for the event. So in that ceremony, Nero is the husband. Sporos will take the place of the bride. Now, a couple of years before this, it's documented Nero had a wedding with another man in which Nero was the bride and the other man was the, was the, the, the groom, the husband in the situation. This is both of those words. The, the, the malakoi, it's the passive. Then the second word, arsenokoite, this is the general term for men who engage in same-sex activity comes out of Leviticus chapter 18. The Old Testament calls it abomination. Actually, the Old Testament calls all these ten things an abomination. It's documented outside of the New Testament as well as that's the meaning. And I know you hear a lot of times, well, you know, homosexuality is not in the, uh, in the Bible or it's not in the New Testament. And I say, well, to, the only way that we can actually say that is that we have to take some pages out of the New Testament to be able to say that. This is one of those pages. But I also want you to see, okay? I mean, you get a hearty amen from the congregation on the deal, and Paul would have two probably. And notice what he says about it. Those who, who do these things. Now, all ten of the things is what he talks about. For any of the ten things. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, what does this mean? That if you've committed one of these, that you're going to go to hell. And I don't think that's what Paul means. The truth is that believers are capable of all of these sins. I think what he means, closer to what he means, is that if you are identified by or 
you know, you're habitually characterized by these sins. Meaning, if there hasn't come a place in your life where this and the habitualness of it, the ongoing of it without any check in your spirit, without any change, without any life transformation, then Paul would say that that's who you still are. That, that's still what your life is. But he's talking to believers here who's saying, look, that's who you once were. There's been a change that's taken place in your life. It does not mean you've not stumbled. It does not mean these things have not popped up here and there in your life. But that's not how you are characterized. That is not who you are anymore. Who you are, verse 11, notice, and such were some of you. But he's going to go on to say, that's not who you are now. And here, here's a couple of things I would say. Even occasional sins... Places in which you stumble in your life goes against everything that you were created to be in Christ. So Paul's saying, don't take this lightly. Don't take these things lightly. Get up out of the mud, believer. Listen, a lifestyle of sin always begins with a single act of sin. Always. So be careful. A lot of times, I know what happens, you know, is this gets talked about and the end of verse 9, you know, gets trumpeted and paraded and I say okay well that's fine but here's the deal there are 10 of these they're all an abomination greediness greedy it's an abomination you can't have a lifestyle of greed you can't be greedy now could be said of you, you know what, I used to be greedy, but the gospel came, and there is a life-changing transformation that took place, and you know what, sometimes I know, I wake up, some days I have a struggle, I struggle with greed, I struggle with being a hoarder, I struggle with not sharing or be generous, I do, I still struggle with that in my life, that's not who I am, that's how it works. Listen, the only thing I ever know about you in your life ever is that you're greedy. Then we need to back up. Or a drunkard or a reviler. By drunkard, he means one with a rebellious fist against God in the midst of it. Reviler, robber, take what's not yours. Any of these. Do you see what I'm saying? 
And the context here is those that are cheating their brothers. We're not like that. You have a future that says you're going to judge the world and angels. You have uh, a past that you have been transformed out of. So that's what he's appealing to. The future to come. The past you left behind because of life-changing transformation has occurred. So he's saying, listen, we bring tomorrow's hopes. Yesterday's transformation into how we live our life today. And now notice verse 11 real quick. You've been changed by God. And such were some of you, Corinthians, Bethelins, however you say that. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. This is such a glorious verse in this context or in any context. And it brings us to worshiping God this morning because here's the deal. What he is celebrating is that God has done something that only God can do, and that is that he has saved sinners, of which you and I are. You know, listen, before that you were without hope. You were without God, but God saved you. You could do nothing for yourself, but God saved you, and you've been changed. And each of these, this isn't an ongoing washing. No, you were washed. This is an ongoing sanctification here. This is sanctified. This is justified. You were washed from the stain of sin. You were made clean by the mercy of God. Listen, if you're here this morning and that's not who you are, you, 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 haven't, you haven't come to the moment of believing the gospel. The, the gospel has not come and, and, and taken hold of you. And, 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 and by faith, you've said, no, I'm counting on nothing but Jesus. I, would, I want you to say this. I want you to hear this morning. It doesn't matter how filthy your soul is. I don't know. Some of you are sitting here and you think, hey, My soul is so filthy. My life is littered with shame and filth. And I tell you, it doesn't matter. The gospel's not out of reach for you. Some of you, the problem is, you know what? I don't need anything that radical. I've been doing pretty good. The last 10 years, I've been, been doing pretty good. I've been making some progress. Where there are some this morning that need to repent of a lifetime of shame and sin and just horrible decisions, things that keep you up at night. There are some of you that need to repent of a whole host of good things that you think you are that matter before God. Because this is something only God can do. You can't get the stain of sin out of your life by yourself. There's nothing you can do. You didn't wash yourself. You can't. Jesus' death on the cross is the only thing that pays the debt in full and is able to remove the guilt from your conscience, Hebrews says. 
sanctified from the grip of sin. Listen, this means to be declared holy, to be set apart from the world and set apart unto God. It means you have a new purpose, a divine purpose, divine worth. And because of the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence in your life, you have divine power to live out who you are in Christ. And then notice he says justified. You've been washed from the stain of sin, sanctified from the grip of sin, justified from the penalty of sin. Sin's sentence for you. It means you've been made right. You've been declared but more than just not guilty. You have been declared righteous. And so what Paul says is, once we're in such were some of you, you're no longer defined by those things. You're no longer defined by your mistakes or your sin. God compares you to his righteous, holy, perfect standard and says, you meet the mark. And some of you are like, well, when did I do that? And I'll tell you, you didn't. Jesus did. And he credited it to your account as a gift. He went to the cross. He became the curse. He clothed himself in our sin and our shame. Talk about being wronged and defrauded. Having your rights trampled. That's why he says, in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit, he's saying, something greater than you has transformed you. So you're not defined by what you've done. You're now defined by what Jesus has done. Let that sink into your bones this morning. Let that make its way into the marrow of your soul. You're defined by what Jesus has done. Well, I'll close it this way. Here's a couple of things. We should try to settle lawsuits amongst us. Call an elder, call a pastor, call somebody. Say, we got this problem, we need to work it out. Because when we take things to the court system, healthy relationship is not the outcome. Nobody wins. The healthy and restored relationship between the two believers is the goal. Then happen. Another thing to take away from this, and hear this: the best that the court can give you is law, and that is based upon your past actions. That's the extent of its power. The best the court can give you is to make a judgment about you based on past action. That's all that the law can do. On the flip side, religion, the best that it can do is what you can do for yourself moving forward. That's the system in every religion. That's the only hope religion offers. It's the very best you can do for yourself moving forward. The law cannot give you a right relationship with God. The law cannot wash you or sanctify you or justify you. Neither can religion. 
Instead of washing, here's what happens. The law convicts. Instead of sanctifying, the law exposes our sins. Instead of justifying, the law condemns. Washing, sanctifying, justifying, this only happens by grace. And grace only comes to us because of the cross. It's not, we can't make grace. Grace comes to us because of what Jesus has done. Grace is what gives you a right relationship with God. You can accept today. Maybe you never have, but you can accept today from God what no human authority or human system or human grounded hope could ever give you. Including yourself. A transformed past. Washed, sanctified, and justified. And a hope for tomorrow. God's representative in his eternal kingdom. I invite you this morning to do that. Embrace it and take hold of it. Know what it is to be a child of God. If you would, would you bow, bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray you do these things in our life. The only hope we have for the for those 10 things that show up in verses 9 and 10, and not just those 10, there's a whole bunch of other things that show up outside of that. For the only hope we have in our life, the only hope, is that you would wash us and sanctify us and justify us because of the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. So, Father, I pray you would grant us eyes to see that and ears to hear that and hearts to receive that by faith. Salvation in Christ alone. So, Father, do this in us. Lord, I pray that this Church, I pray that for those that are convicted this morning by some situation going on in, in their life right now, that, that they, well, how am I supposed to proceed with this? And Father, I pray you grant wisdom to see clearly a way forward where restoration and um, relational health is the goal in the end. And humility enough to ask for help and, and wisdom enough to seek counsel. And that, Father, we seek to honor you. That our future hope, our, our transformed past, they, they would bring to light the life that we are walking today in your Son, Jesus. And so we pray these things the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.